Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. I am at chapter two in my book, Help, My Marriage Has Grown Cold. This is a case study of a lady who who blew past the red lights and went down to the altar, got married, only to regret it several years later as she discovered that her new husband of five years is in pornography. She comes to a biblical counselor, and she is looking for help. Again, this is a long-form case study that I've created here for you. I would love for you to have all access to it. And so I'm putting this case study, nine chapters in audio, video, written form. And you can go to our store at lifeovercoffee.com and you can download the free ebook. You can print it off. Please use it as a homework assignment. If you're doing mentoring, discipleship, or biblical counseling, please use it in a a case study training event with uh, those that you want to grow and mature in discipleship practices. And of course, it would be a wonderful study for any young couple to go through on either side of marriage, whether they are seriously dating and heading toward the altar, or uh, if they are married and they realize that they might be in trouble, this could be an excellent long-form case study There is a lot of practical application at the end of each chapter. I give them uh, questions to work through. And then finally, in chapter 9, we'll get there eventually. I have several projects, homework assignments for uh, Mabel to think about. This case study is set up with Mabel working on her marriage alone because her husband, Biff, is not interested in doing that. Now, you can swap genders, and so if it is Biff working alone, despite uh, Mabel's unwillingness to work on the marriage, then all you have to do is just flip the genders, and all of this applies to Biff, too. This is chapter two. Uh, Chapter one uh, talked about is titled Desperate Housewife, and so it gave the precursor as to how she got into this situation, going back into her thoughts during the dating season, and then as she uh, tripped over into marriage and those first few years when she discovered pornography. She's now at her counseling session with her biblical counselor. This is chapter two, again called Mabel's Lonely, Lonely Journal Begins. Lonely journey begins. After a couple of sessions of getting to know Babel, I began to ask specific questions regarding her fundamental understanding of theology and how that theology worked out practically in her life. Now, let me give you a big caveat here that when you do biblical counseling, what can happen sometimes in a biblical counseling context is we we can speed up the counseling process. There are many liabilities to biblical counseling, and we need to understand them or we are not going to do it well. And one of those understandings is that we do not slow down the process so that a person can understand the context and the content, the motivation, the reason uh, for the questions that you're asking, that you haven't built a relationship bridge with them because we're on the clock. You have 60 minutes. Let's go. This is a counseling session. 
And by the way, it's one of the reasons I never counsel for 60 minutes. All of my counseling sessions have been historically two hours, and that is the starting point. I have counseled as much as five and a half hours, but that would be an anomaly. But my point here is that I counsel for two hours because there are things that I need to communicate. In many cases, it is with a stranger who does, does not know me, and often they do not have a, a construct of counseling in view. They would not understand the sequence of where they need to go. And so when I ask a question about theology, this can throw a counselee because they come to a counseling session expecting tips and best practices and how to apply things into their life so that they can start pulling levers and turning knobs today so that their marriage can change because they too can succumb to the sped up process of biblical counseling. And that's not how soul care should happen. Soul care is primarily foundational, and if you're not on the same page foundationally, then whatever you do above ground, behaviorally, superficially, will not be rooted into a sound theological construct. And so when you ask, as I did, her fundamental understanding of theology and how that theology worked out practically in her life, that would not be the question that she would be anticipating. And so as I led, I said, after a couple of sessions of getting to know Mabel. Now, in my world, that is four hours, a couple of sessions, two hours each. And so this is a slow roll. This is a slow walk as we're getting into the depth of the essential things, which is her foundation. If you go right into behavioral modifying, lever pulling, and uh, uh, knob turning, uh, you can circumvent the process because you're uh, skipping sequences or a linkage that is absolutely essential. I knew that Mabel's primary issues were rooted in her theology, not her relationship with Biff, but she came into this counseling session thinking about her relationship with Biff because she lives on a horizontal plane. She got married to Biff because she loved him. She's frustrated with Biff because he's in porn. She wants Biff to do better. She wants their marriage to be better. And so as you hear all that, that is all horizontal. That is a lot of changing behavior. But what people have to understand is that our words come from our hearts. And so the genesis of our words, our actions, our attitudes are all born in our hearts and they're tied to how we understand and practice God in our lives. Now, I knew all that, but this is not what she was expecting. And so we're slow rolling this thing to build that relational bridge to her so that I could bring a truth over to her that she was not expecting. I knew that if I could uncover what she believed about God and how she applied her understanding, the doctrine of theology, and I'm talking about the doctrine of God proper, meaning the doctrine of God himself, and how she understood the doctrine of theology proper and applied it into her life, then I would start to understand how she had gotten herself into this place in her life and in her marriage. The answer to every issue that she would ever encounter, including her current, current marriage problems, would, in the final analysis, flow out of her, her theology. Again, redundancy on purpose here. Specifically, how she thought about God 
and how she practically applied those thoughts to her life. Now, my initial point of focus was Romans 8.28. This is also a trigger that you don't want to pull too soon uh, when someone is struggling. We all talk about the 8.28 bullet. Well, we know, brother, that all things work together for God, and uh, that can be repulsive to some people uh, because it sounds too simplistic, and it really sounds like you just put a bumper sticker across my forehead. Don't cliche me. However, this verse was very important to Mabel, and again, it's why I wanted to build a relational bridge, because she needed to know me, she needed to hear my heart, she needed to understand where I was coming from, and so we were moving in slow motion because I knew I had the 828 card, and I really wanted to get inside of it, because this is essential training that she needed to know, because there's two things here in this text. One is God. God, and then two is her understanding of God, of good, what she wanted. Those two things are important. Well, who is God? And how do you relate to him? And how do you practice the doctrine of God in your life? Talk to me about your sound theological understanding of theology proper, God himself. And then what flows out of that is a practice and an application which ties to the word good. Because what we're going to find out is that Mabel had an interpretation of good, how life should be for her for the rest of her life. And it of course, it is connected to who she believes and how she thinks about God. And so in Romans 8, 28, you find both God situated, positioned, positioned foundationally, and then out of our understanding of God, we have a good that flows out of theology proper. Unfortunately, Mabel's understanding of, of good is askew, just to put it mildly. Now, I'm pretty sure you know this text, but let me read it to you anyway. Paul says, and we know, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And that's where we see theology proper and all things flowing out of our understanding and practice of God. All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. And so I discovered that Mabel's core theology included her misunderstanding of that word good in Romans 20, uh, uh, 8.28. She realized that her understanding and her desire for what is good differed from what the Bible portrays as good. While all things work together for good for the Christian, there is no question about that. The reality of that text for Mabel was frustrating because she was not seeing the good. She was not understanding what good meant when she was using that as the filter to view her relationship with Biff, her marriage specifically. Sadly, she had misinterpreted Paul's meaning, meaning of good in 828. One of the first things I did was assess and adjust her interpretation and expectation of what good meant to her. She had been set on a course 
to find and experience good for many years. I talked about in chapter one how Mabel was a task lister and she had a rhythm. She had beats in her life that she accomplished this. She got the result that she wanted. She went to the next thing. She accomplished that, got the result that she wanted. And again, these were all good according to her interpretation of good. And so she moved to the next beat in her rhythmic life. And the next beat was Biff. And so she got married. Okay, check the box. But now there is good. This is not good. He's a porn addict. He has an anger problem. He is a self-reliant individual. And so this doesn't sound rhythmic at all. There is a beat that is off here, and she could not see that. And it was evident that she had a simplistic and incomplete idea of what good meant from a theological perspective. And so to explore this presuppositional truth with her... I had to get her to think through what Paul was thinking and saying in Romans 8.28 and how Paul wanted us to interpret the good that happens to us when trouble comes. You see, the problem with Mabel, and maybe I could say it this way, is that she was worshiping a God that did not exist meaning her God was a fairy tale. Her God was a divine butler. I serve a God that's going to give me what I want, how I want it. That God does not exist. And so she's serving a God that does not exist. And that created a problem for her because the God who does exist, sometimes he will give us things that will mature us, and sometimes those things that mature us will be a thorn in the flesh. And so she, in reality, had a significant misunderstanding of God, even serving one who does not exist in this world and never has. And so most certainly the good from that text, it absolutely doesn't mean that I will live healthy, wealthy, and a peaceful life all the time. That is the God that does not exist. It also does not mean that when trouble comes, God is about to turn this tragedy or disappointment into man-centered prosperity or a preferred outcome for me. Let me illustrate my point here with the story of Mildred. Mildred is in an automobile accident, completely wrecking her car. Through the ordeal, she received an incredible insurance claim that allowed her to buy a far better car than her previous aging vehicle. Though God did work these things into her life and she did receive a brand new vehicle, it can be misleading to bring Romans 8.28 to bear on this situation. For some, it might imply that God is our divine dream weaver, that it is a fairy tale, that he is our divine butler, which is not the good Paul was discussing. By the way, it also does not take into account the other person in the accident whose rates went up and has new car payments that they previously did not have. Kind of reminds me of you're, you're going to be bit by a mosquito and somebody slaps you on the leg and squishes that uh, mosquito to smithereens. Well, praise God, that turned out good, didn't it? The mosquito didn't bite me. 
Of course, the little mosquito family is thinking, where's my dad? You just slapped my dad into smithereens. And so we need to make sure that we're not so myopic or looking through such a tight tunnel or we're not so self-centered that we can only interpret good by a tight definition, specifically how things meet our preferred outcomes. Whether or not our life and our circumstances unfold to our liking is not the point of the Bible, nor, nor is it the point of life in a fallen world. Giving us the life that we've always wanted is not at the top of God's to-do list. As you can understand, this is why I needed to get underneath the marriage, practically speaking, We'll get to the marriage, practically speaking, in a moment. There are nine chapters here in my little book, Help, My Marriage Has Grown Cold. But in the linkage, if you're going to help a person, chapter number one, we got to understand the mess that you're in. And then, and then as soon as appropriate, you, start, you, start, you have to get into the theological substructure that pre-existed. It predated the mess that they are in. And so Mabel brought her mess to me. There it is. Uh, you have a lot of issues here. First step, after you tell me about your mess, we need to understand theology proper. She accepts that now, but again, it was a slow walk to get to that place because you don't want to succumb to the liability of biblical counseling and fast-pace this thing and blow through too much because she won't be ready to receive all of that because she doesn't have those categories, context, or understanding. And so giving us the life that we always wanted is not at the top of God's to-do list. Let me give you a few examples of lives, of lives that seem to have gone in the wrong direction. Jesus' life ended in death. Why? So that God could bring about good. Joseph's life landed him in a pit and then a prison. Why? To bring about good. He could not be more explicit in Genesis 50:20. Moses spent 40 years in a desert. Why? To bring about good. Esther was willing to lay down her life to bring about good. Job lost everything, but from his horrible experience came good. The good that God is working in me and working in you are to make us more like Jesus. And here's a key thought. If our circumstances, the circumstances in our lives, in our world, if they are not conforming us to Jesus, then we are missing the point of what is going on in our lives. The purpose of the Bible is transformation, not seven habits for highly effective people. Neither is it my success or happiness as defined by our culture. If I gain personal prosperity or property or plaudits or power in this life, but these means for maturity do not conform me to the image of God's Son, then I have most definitely missed the point of God's work in my life. The good in Romans 8.28 and the significance of the whole passage is that God will change me into the image of Christ, but not necessarily healthy or wealthy will be the, those outcomes. 
Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to conform to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he had predestined, he has called. And those he has called, he has justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What God has begun in us, as Paul would say in another place in 1 6 of Philippians, he is most certainly going to complete. What Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, you will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is a finisher. And he will work good into our lives. And sometimes that good will come with a cross. Other times it will come with a thorn. Other times you may get a new vehicle and you may win the lottery. During my counseling sessions with Mabel, it became apparent that she saw her marriage as something to bring about her interpretation of what is good. And I knew that, and that's why I wanted to slow walk down into her, her theology. Because if she does not reconstruct her theology according to what the Bible teaches, then she is going to build a life on sand, which is basically just moving to another spot of sand because it's already built on sand. And though she loved God wholeheartedly, and there is no question about that, her Improper theology, because a person does not have sound theology, it doesn't mean that they don't love God. And so she loved God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. But she felt incomplete, and she thought that Biff would fill the gap. Now, this is really getting into her theology at even a deeper way, and we'll talk more about this desire to be filled by love by someone else other than God a little later on, because this was starting to leach out as the conversation continued. The trap that Mabel fell into was a trap of her own making. And I'm saying that to you, and I'm keeping those thoughts to myself in a counseling session because there's no need to be punitive here. There's no need to rub her face in it. She can feel it as her theology is being reconstructed. She can see it. Let the Spirit of God bring that condemnation if they are moving on the right track. And Mabel's trajectory was leaning into God and wanting to glorify Him. And as I said, she loved Him with her whole heart, so there was no need to say that you made your bed, now you're lying in it. No, it was of her own making. And I'm saying that to you, but I would not say that aloud in a counseling session because she can already sense it. And knowing that the Spirit of God is doing that deeper work in her heart, she will do what she needs to do to rebuild her theology so that she could come out practically living a better life, despite whatever Biff may do, which we will talk about later. After her marriage had grown cold, her hope was for her husband to change. And while Biff did need to change, there was no question about that. The first order of business for Mabel was for her to change. She was the one in the counseling session. She was the one that was seeking help. And so you, you work with what's hot. You work what is before you. You work with the person that is will, willing, not the person who is unwilling. And her theology and her practice of theology, the doctrine of, of the, uh, the doctrine of God, 
It needed reshaping before she could address the apparent flaws in Biff and their marriage. This is chapter two from my book, Help, My Marriage Has Grown Cold. The title of this chapter is Mabel's Lonely Journey Begins. I want to wrap up by asking a few questions that I trust will help you to think more clearly about uh, this chapter, and then we will move on to chapters three through nine. Question number one. After you make a significant decision that does not go as planned, is your instinct to regret the decision or see what God might want to do with your life? This is an important diagnostic that you want to make when you're helping someone. Obviously, regret is going to be there. And that is okay in the sense that regret is normal. The problem is regret cannot linger. And so regret would fit within the constellation of suffering-centered or problem-centered. Regret hangs out in that company. But then we are sovereignty-centered, and we always live in a parallel between sovereignty and suffering. For some people, the parallel can be flipped, where, uh, where suffering is driving them, and sovereignty uh, has a lower influence in their life, and you have to discern that. And so when you think about problem-centered or suffering-centered, you want to see what words can glom on a problem-centered person. In a situation like what Mabel is in, one of those words will be regret. Again, it is expected, and regret will never detach itself from being problem-centered. That's fine. That's the company that regret likes to keep. However, uh, being problem-centered and then all the adverse things that glom on to being problem-centered uh, has to subjugate itself or themselves to being sovereignty-centered. And so while you might regret, sovereignty has to be guiding our lives. The question is, after you make a significant decision that does not go as planned, is your instinct to regret the decision? Probably. Okay, that's fine. We're not being penalized. You don't have to go to the penalty box. By the way, if you go to the penalty box, it'll be you that is imposing that on yourself. You will regret, but then you take that thought captive because you want to transition at that pivot point. And the pivot point is, yes, I regret the decision that I've made, but God is going to do some work in my life. There is a good here, and that good has something to do with the regret. And so we want to make sure that we're sovereignty-centered when our problems come. Number two, can God use our sinful choices redemptively? This is a rhetorical question. Let me give you a clue. Christ dying on the cross. But I did want to insert this question here because I think sometimes it can escape us. We can, again, if we are so problem-centered or suffering-centered or sin-centered, they're all in the same family, they live in the same hood, if we're, if we're that way in our mindset, if that's our worldview, then it will be hard to see how God can use sinful choices or sinful events redemptively. But the saying is true, God uses sin sinfully. I gave you several illustrations of that earlier with Job and 
Esther and Moses and Joseph and Jesus, and there's many more. You should have illustrations in your life where they have sinful choices that you have made or people have done sinful things to you and you have seen God do redemptive things through those events or situations. God can use sin sinfully, and we have our testimonies too, but we need to remind ourselves of that, and Mabel needs to see this because she needs a a deeper level, more controlling understanding of who God is, uh, what her theology is, and how it needs to shape her foundationally. Question number three, why must Mabel focus on her theology before addressing what is wrong with her marriage? I have made that case over and over in this chapter. I trust that you would be able to answer the question. But as far as hierarchy is concerned, from heart to lip, from from who we are in our hearts to the words and the behaviors that we exhibit in the public space, there is a hierarchy there. And whatever our hearts are, however our hearts have been shaped, it will determine the words that we use, the things that we do, the life that we live. Therefore, that hierarchy is important. And when you see a person where their fruit is not aligning correctly to what Uh, God's Word teaches and who God is, well, that just means that there is something underneath foundationally that is askew, and that's why I wanted to talk to her about theology, uh, and I needed to do that in a slow process so that she would understand the point of this question here. Why must Mabel focus on her theology before addressing what is wrong with her marriage? And then finally, number four, what do you think is deficient about her relationship with God? This question will lead you into chapter three. That will be the next chapter that I will cover. What do you think is deficient about her relationship with God? I talked a little bit about her misunderstanding of good, according to Romans 8.28, but it is deeper than that. There is more complexity. There are multiple strands that's hanging out of her garment, not just a misunderstanding of who God is and what good could mean and how God could use tragedy for triumph. But there are other things that's hanging out of her garment. And so it would be good for you to spend just a little bit of time thinking about this question. And if you're in a discussion group going through, help, my marriage has grown cold, then you really want to linger here and talk through what is deficient about her relationship with God. What is truly going on in her psyche, in her soul, uh, that has motivated her to blow through the red lights and get married, even though counsel was against it, her gut instinct was against it, as she understood the Bible, that there was wisdom there that she was blowing through, but there was something deficient about her relationship with God, and so she went ahead and self-willed herself into marriage, and now she's living to regret it, but we're going to turn all of that around. We're going to take this negative narrative, flip it on its head, and God is going to do a triumphant thing uh, through this difficult situation that she has put herself in, and a lot of that is tied how she thinks about the Lord. I would encourage you also, if you want to do supplemental reading, please get my book, Get Ready. It is super practical. I've had pastors tell me that they use this book in premarital counseling. These are the things that I've learned 
learned in biblical counseling, counseling couples in trouble. And so I wanted to put those things in a book. Uh, there's call to actions at the end of each chapter. This is an excellent book to think about. If you are dating, courting, and then for those of you who are on the other side of your wedding day, well, you're married, you want some help. This book here, Get Ready, would be outstanding, and I do highly recommend it. This is chapter two and the nine chapters from my little booklet in our store, Help, My Marriage Has Grown Cold. Please download that free booklet. This is chapter two, Mabel's Lonely Journey Begins. Thanks so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.